You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, I'm here in Marin County. As you can tell by the smile on my face and my venture capital vest, I'm sitting down with my good friend, Josh Wolf. Josh, welcome back to Real Vision. Mike, great to see you. In honor of you wearing the vest, I have disrobed of my classic cardigan sweater. Well, we appreciate that because I know having seen some of the videos that you've done recently, you've been working on your guns and we, we do have female viewership. There's nothing they'd rather see than Josh Wolf disrobed. The <laughs> it's been almost a full year since we sat down. I know you and I had really hoped that we'd be able to do this in person. We're both sick of Zoom calls and have missed the opportunity to sit down in person. But, you know, I wanted to actually start this off with kind of your thoughts on the technology advancement or the technology um, propulsion that has effectively occurred with the shutdowns, moving people into video communications. You sat down with me almost actually three years ago to talk about NVIDIA and what you were seeing in terms of the implications of their technology advancements. Today, we're all using that in, in a way that I don't think we could have ever imagined a year ago. What's going on at Lux? How are you guys behaving under these conditions? How are you seeing your companies adapt, et cetera, in this world of work from home? I think most of this is is, is relatively consensus. Uh, you know, you have three, four years of mass adoption that have been accelerated into a pretty short period of time. Uh, half of our team being in New York, half of our team being in Menlo Park was already remote. So in a sense, you know, we already had this virtual aspect for half of our team. What changed is at the micro scale, at the individual offices, people dispersed. And so we went from being, you know, half the team to being, you know, 100% of the team uh, being fully dispersed. But I think we were used to that. Uh, you know, Peter and I co-run the firm and, uh, you know, we're only together a few times a year when we talk, you know, 10 times a day and are on video multiple times a week. But uh, I feel like we didn't miss a beat there. Uh, with our companies, uh, I think that they all communicated with each other, communicated with us, try to figure out best practices, particularly for being able to sound that resonant tonal A, beat the drum as a leader, if you're a CEO, and make sure that everybody's sort of aligned. You know, the, the downside for us in assessing companies, remember, we're not strictly doing software stuff. We're doing some very sophisticated hardware technology. You're getting demos. You're seeing self-driving cars. You're watching rockets being built. Uh, you know, you're looking at physical stuff. That was really painful. Uh, in, in spite of that, I will tell you that we ended up doing probably the craziest pace of deal making that we've done, which has pros and cons to it. But the very thing that I love to do in sitting with an entrepreneur is looking at, you know, the two founders and seeing the body language, seeing the subtle tells when one makes a very bombastic, you know, big audacious claim. And the other one is either nodding along with conviction or gives that poker tell where they swallow and I can read the discomfort. There's subtle cues like that that are totally lost. I mean, it's, it's truly a multidimensional mosaic that gets compressed into this two-dimensional screen. And so I really miss that. And, and I find that we are, are losing a competitive advantage of being able to read and assess people, especially when so much of what we do at that conception or inception stage is really hard to distinguish between you know, somebody that's visionary or totally delusional. The other thing is 
we often try to be cinematic when we're winning deals, meaning we want to create a, a memory, a moment for that entrepreneur that they are telling their loved ones, their spouse, their, their parents, their family, here's how Lux came and presented the term sheet and did, you know, did the deal. Uh, we want it to feel special and we want that story to, to replicate so that we sort of distinguish ourselves. We've had term sheets go out after meeting an entrepreneur on a Monday, on a Friday, and we've seen a competing firm come in on Saturday morning through Zoom because the barriers to be able to compete have been uh, you know, eviscerated. So that is also to our disadvantage. Uh, we found other ways to sort of make up for that. But by and large, we've put out more money this year, I think, than we have in the past two combined. You know, the size of the checks that we're writing, the speed at which we've been doing it, um, all of which, you know, also makes us very concerned. But in a sense, I thought March, you know, market had a short drawdown. I thought we were going to see illiquidity, which I've been talking about for a really long time. I thought our LPs were going to have issues. I thought other people's LPs were going to have issues. We were going to have a, a big opportunity for special situations. None of that happened. By May, we went into a FOMO frenzy across the board in venture. And the pace of capital formation has been truly unprecedented in our, in our sector. So one of the things that's driven that FOMO and that pace of unprecedented activity, I would argue, has been the special purpose acquisition companies, the SPACs. I've heard of these things. You, you've heard of those. Well, not only have you heard of them, you've done a couple, right? So de Desktop Metal is uh, a Lux deal that came public via a SPAC. You recently sold one of your businesses, I think, Latch to Tishman Spire um, via another SPAC, right? What is, what's the story for, for SPACs from a venture capitalist perspective? Why not do the traditional S1 prospectus filing, go through the process of an IPO? Why, why have SPACs become an attractive vehicle for, from a venture capitalist perspective? Well, first of all, I, I give you credit because you were talking about this as its resurgence in structural, which I, I love and value deeply about you, uh, long before this even became a thing. And uh, you were sort of uh, urging me, you know, make sure that you're on top of this. This is going to become a big phenomenon. So thank you. Uh, and we've had four of our companies, you know, uh, go public at, at significant valuations, capture a significant amount of capital and cash and stock currency. And uh, that gives you the fuel to be able to do some transformative deals. The, the number one appeal of it, of course, is the ability to really give forward guidance. I mean, that is the arbitrage uh, of being able to actually talk to the market and talk about what you're going to do. And that, of course, invites both good actors and bad actors into the pool because you've got some people that are going to make these audacious claims that are totally full of shit. And you've got other people that are making authentic claims, talking about the prospects of their business. And um, it will take time for that to sort out you know, between the SPACs and the craps. SPACs themselves, as you know, of course, this was the backwater finance. If somebody would have come to me a year and a half ago or even a year ago and said, hey, you should think about turning your company public with a SPAC, the people that were participating in these things were you know, shady operators. You would see them at these low quality B minus or C minus uh, or D plus, you know, bankers, the kind of people that typically had Pitbull and Snoop Dogg, you know, performing at their uh, soirees. It was always, always a signal. It was probably more of an attractive ground for short sellers to identify candidates of companies to short than it was uh, any signal of high quality companies to be long. And so uh, it was, to me, a totally illegitimate area. By comparison, you know, I was talking to uh, uh, Bill Conway, Carlisle founder, who helped put us in business. And I was like, there's something here that feels almost resonant with the late 80s with the buyout boom, where you had junk bonds that was this totally uh, illegitimate area of finance that a combination of portfolio theory and academic theory put forth by Milken was basically like, well, wait a second, you can sort of build a venture capital-like portfolio and induced you know, uh, a lot of institutional capital that ended up creating enormous businesses. Bill said, actually, there's a lot of similarities here, uh, except many of those businesses were legitimately good businesses that were generating cash flow. And almost everything that's happening in the SPAC world, including a lot of our companies, are still profit 
losing, uh, you know, unprofitable money losing businesses that have very large TAMs and very high growth rates. And at the moment, that is being valued above all else. So it's interesting. I mean, the reason I drew your attention to SPACs is because my view is that they're actually a structural phenomenon, right? What is actually happening with SPACs is it is a component of index arbitrage similar to the inclusion of Tesla into the S&P 500. Um, if you look at the methodology for the larger indices like a Vanguard Total Market Index, a SPAC takes advantage of a feature of that. So a SPAC is a blank check acquisition company, right? It is capitalized effectively as a zero coupon bond non-operating, you as the sponsor are guaranteed, or as a participant are guaranteed to at minimum get your money back, right? So you invest a thousand bucks, you're gonna get a thousand bucks back and you will receive the option to decide to participate in the purchase of a operating entity, right? When issued, therefore they trade like a cash instrument. Right. What is the yield effectively to maturity that is represented by the time of the SPAC that exists? And then the second phenomenon that occurs is once they, they make an operating acquisition or identify an operating acquisition, you get to place that vote. Right. The interesting feature is, is that while they are cash vehicles, they are not eligible for index inclusion in a Vanguard type index. But once they make the operating acquisition, if, they, if it is a size acquisition of a certain threshold, then it hits what is called fast track IPO status. And instead of having to wait six to 12 months for inclusion as you would for a normal IPO, which creates the buying pressure from the vanguards, et cetera, it becomes eligible in as few as five days, right? And so what I would suggest that we're seeing is just a variant of what we saw with Tesla, right? Where $70 billion of Tesla needed to be purchased basically between September of 2020 and December of 2020, which in the presence of an inelastic group of holders, those who are not willing to sell on an increase in price, those could be passive, those could be Kathy Wood at ARC, et cetera, prices have to rise until they achieve a level that requires that. And perversely, as the prices rise, even more needs to be bought, right? So when you have a SPAC that makes a billion dollar acquisition, Functionally, it means that Vanguard is going to have to step in in, in five to 10 days and buy $70 million to $100 million of that illiquid vehicle propelling the price higher. And we're just seeing this over and over and over again. Effectively, what I think is occurring is a transfer mechanism from private equity and venture capital players. You know, They are receiving the funds from Vanguard investors without the Vanguard investors really having any idea what they're doing. They don't think they're, you know, they are not aware of this methodology dynamic. So I think that's what's actually happening. And I think unfortunately a narrative is built up around it that this is superior, that it allows you to give forward guidance. I mean, the reality is you may think for, forward guidance matters, but you, know, uh, you and I both know that the easiest way to tell if a management team is lying is if their lips are moving, right? So it is not always true of every company, but it is, very unlikely to me that that idea of forward guidance is accomplishing anything particularly significant. Well, for, first of all, I'm, I'm shocked because I, I thought that this entire thing, you know, was just my pure genius. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, we, 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 have, we, of course, um, we both know privately. that's prodigious, but not the driver here. Yes. Correct. But we, we've spoken privately about this and, and you have tuned me into the structural aspect of almost necessitated, uh, arguably algorithmic passive buying and uh, in an already illiquid small float name. The forward guidance is relevant only in so much as the pipe participants 
And I actually think that's going to be a distinguishing characteristic between the winners and the losers, between the SPACs and the craps over time. When you have people like D1 and Viking and KOTU and Tiger and others that I think are of higher quality, more discriminating, traditionally long short, which I would distinguish from a Kathy Wood arc, you know, that are almost thematic, um, you know, promoters of a, of a asset class. I think that uh, the forward guidance lets them look and say, legally, what is this business going to look like in four or five years, which management can never talk about if you were just filing a traditional S1 and doing an IPO. There's another structural piece, which I know you know as well, which is on the front end of this. And so the ability, you know, we have a SPAC as well, right? And focused on health and tech, we took the team from Oris, which I think we probably mm-hmm. first revealed together on, on Real Vision, that we sold to J&J for $6 billion and, and said, you know, let's put some incredible people and let them go and find another target. But on the front end, you know, the Millennium Citadels, um, uh, uh, you know, dozens of firms are basically buying into the SPACs, as you noted, for the cash yield piece, getting 10 to 1 leverage in, in large part from Canadian banks. Uh, so on the front end, you have this levered trade for cash yield, uh, getting a SPAC unit and or warrant, letting them get their money back. Uh, and then depending if they get a sense that there's momentum behind the deal, they might hold it and trades up and maybe they're you know parlaying it. Uh, and then you go into this other structural issue, which is the total market funds that are these almost mandatory buyers of this. So uh, I think going back to what we talked about a long time ago as a venture guy who's focused on an entrepreneur or technology or thematic trend. I've always said that, you know, it's like picking the best dish on a menu in a restaurant, having picked the best city inside the best state, and then all of a sudden Godzilla comes and steps on you. (laughs) That ignorance of macro is no virtue. And so I really appreciate having these conversations because I go back to my team and I say, you know, guys, I know we think we're geniuses right now. And every conversation that we're having in every Monday and Thursday partner meetings is all about this company just got a higher price term sheet and this company is being approached by a SPAC and they're getting more money. and, And it's all good news. The history of our firm is not about all good news. It's about, oh my God, how do we get the CEO out of here? You know, they're just a disaster and there's a coup, you know, to undermine him or her. You know, how do we capitalize this business? You know, uh, we got down round here. We got to sell this off. We have no bad news across the portfolio, which to me, portends bad news come. It's like when your kid, you're quiet, you know, uh, you got little kids and they're quiet. That's not good. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, I think that's actually a really profound observation it speaks to the quality of the process that you have, that your mind's, your spidey sense effectively is tingling and saying, hey, wait a second, I'm not this good, right? And um, I, I, I think that's going to end up proving very important. But I, I've actually told people right now, the most important thing that you can do right now, aside from, you know, most of the, the calls are you know, talking to bankers, talking to SPAC sponsors, you know, talking to pipe participants and, and really trying to make sure that our companies have the right people that are capitalizing for the long term. And regardless of what the stocks do, and this is the second thing we tell people because they're coming into enormous wealth. You know, I mean, entrepreneurs that are seeing their companies go between one and $5 billion and owning between 10, 20% of it, it's, it's very serious money for them. Uh, don't focus on stock price because this thing might go 10X from here. It might go one-tenth from here. You might see an 80% or 90% decline in your stock price. The only thing you can control is the fundamentals. The one big difference this time, which is always, of course, a dangerous thing, you know, this time is different, is the amount of cash that's being delivered to these balance sheets. It's not like these 50, 7,500 million dollar IPOs of 20 years ago. You know, our companies are getting 500, 600 million dollars of cash. Now, unless they do a ridiculous, you know, Kozlowski-like move where they're throwing parties with, you know, uh, ice statues pissing vodka, they are in a really good place. And that cash and that stock currency is going to be used not only to fuel their own business, but to think really strategically uh, about acquisitions that they can make. I think that speaks to your dynamic that you refer to SPACs versus craps, right? And so there's going to be any number of management teams 
when they have the incentive to conserve that has been removed, right? I mean, you and I talk about this all the time. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? If you are starved for cash, you're going to figure out effective ways to use cash. If you are bathing in cash, you are going to figure out ways to scrub every part of your body with it, right? Um, I, 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 unless, you, unless you have some great board members that are lashing you saying correct. this mistake has been made, do not make it, you will regret it. I, I, I hope that's the case. I mean, I think one of the challenges once they become public is, again, once the vanguards, BlackRocks, et cetera, of the world become their majority shareholders, your influence is diminished significantly. And so I, I'm, I'm very concerned that we're entering a period of, um, you use Dennis Kozlowski, right? We're entering a period of effectively gross corporate leadership, right? Where they are increasingly separated and disenfranchised from their shareholders. I, I hope I'm wrong on that, but that, that would be the core of my point. Now, one of the other phenomena that's happening in SPACs, and, and you and I chatted about this a little bit in the past, is you made a prediction that there would be dedicated pools of capital coming into this sort of space, all right? What, what yes. does that mean? Describe what that means. Well, think about this. You get a bunch of SPACs. If you accept the premise, and even people talking about it, not all SPACs are created equally, and maybe 10% of things are good. You know, there's a famous thing from sci-fi, Sturgeon's Law. And Sturgeon, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, said, you know, 90% of all sci-fi that's written is crap. Okay, well, that extends to pretty much everything. Probably 90% of the people you know are crap. 90% of the music you listen to, 90% of the shows on Netflix, and certainly 90% of the SPACs are crap. So that makes uh, an argument, a raison d'etre, for a fund to say, wait a second, there's an opportunity here for us to be a discriminating selector of SPACs. And we can go to the masses who don't know the difference and pitch them a product. Sure enough, you know, in the past six months, there were three funds that formed to be dedicated pools of new issue SPAC buyers. What ends up happening next? These are low quality, not widely known, not branded firms. They were opportunists. But the opportunists create a signal and a proof point of demand from the market for the branded firms to come in and say, wait a second, these guys raised $500 million. We could raise a $5 billion fund. And sure enough, the pool of capital, the capital formation is going to increase. Now you have a positive feedback effect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Created a legitimate reason for discriminating funds to pick winners versus losers. But now it becomes an asset gathering thing. What's going to happen? They're all going to fuel, whether it's the same concentrated names, and hopefully they're all, you know, our best companies, but you're going to see a rise of this market that should that will go on longer than it should, and I think that will lead to other, arguably predictable consequences in in M and A and and maybe even an event that leads to the ringing of the bell of when we're really at the top. So you mentioned this dynamic of M and A. I mean, again, SPACs are interesting because they're not a traditional venture capital investment. They're not a traditional IPO, right? You you know what you're doing is you're taking a public company and buying a private company. So. M&A can take the form of public companies buying other public companies, public companies buying private companies, which SPAC is a subset of. When you talk about an M&A boom, what does that look like in your mind? What does that mean? So um, when we as VCs, you know, the one thing we can control is our entry price. And then we're focused on our exit. And classically, you're either taking a company public, which is selling it, selling your shares to other public market shareholders, or you're selling it to one shareholder, an acquiring company. When yep. we had Control Labs, which was the brain machine interface, we sold that to Facebook against my preference. You know, that was a sale to Zuck effectively. Of course, it was the Facebook shareholders, but it was one shareholder Facebook. The discrimination of boardrooms when you are making an M&A decision is generally pretty high. You know, you have bankers coming in, they're making justification of what the market's going to take. You're looking at whether it's accretive or not, you know, to your bottom line. You're making a justification. You're looking at alternatives and opportunity costs. 
So if you are a legitimate business that has had a good track record of M&A, by which I mean you're disciplined, you make good acquisitions, you have a reputation for making good acquisitions, all of a sudden, you see a bunch of players in your sector, upstarts, going public. And you might have bought that business at 200 or $300 million, but it just went public at a billion and a half. And you sit there in your boardroom, and you're like, this is crazy. And you're right. And then it happens again to another company. And you're like, man, this is really crazy. And it happens again and again. And before you know it, you say, wait a second, guys, if we don't buy some of these businesses, they're going to capitalize. They're going to attract talent. They're going to get our customers. They might even combine and consolidate and do a, a merger amongst themselves. And they might start buying some of our businesses. And we would be looking at this as a disciplined, I'm playing the role of a disciplined M&A investor, and say, oh, I can't buy this for you know more than 10 times earnings, let alone 10 times revenue. This company just bought that other little company, I meaning this fact just bought this other little company for 30 times revenue. They could spend 15 and it would be accretive to them. So I think you're going to have a decline in the discipline of boardrooms that is going to open up the spigot of people saying, oh my God, if we don't become less disciplined and do these deals, we're going to make some real strategic errors of omission. And so they'll make an error of... They'll make an error of commission on the price they pay, which will be too high, to avoid it going to a competitor. And you will see a frenzy of buying with arguably, as you see today, a frenzy of buying in the public market of indiscriminate valuation. So one of the things that ultimately limits that is for a corporation, they either have to issue their own shares, right? Or they, so the dilution dynamic. Or they have to issue debt to make the acquisition, acquire something for cash, right? Um, when you issue the debt, there's a component of the cash flow. And I think that, I, first of all, I agree with the mechanism that you describe. And I think it's always important for people to recognize that what you were referring to at the very start, right? Suddenly well-funded competitors emerging that have half a billion dollars sitting in the bank, particularly if those businesses have an incentive to try to gain market share, that is going to permanently impair the business you know, or for an extended period of time, impair the business of the um, publicly traded competitor of the traditional competitor in the space. It has a perverse dynamic when we talk about this sort of reflexivity, which is what this really is in markets, where the currently publicly traded businesses actually, or current dominant businesses could very much be under threat. And so they are forced into the M&A boom that you described to defend themselves, right? It, it does create all sorts of bad behavior, but all of it contributes to the same dynamic that you and I are both referring to, which is this function of feeding frenzy. Let me, let me give you a quick, 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 very quick anecdote. Yeah. Desktop metal went public, uh, $2.5 billion valuation, since doubled $5.3 billion valuation, uh, already did its first acquisition. Okay, They got $575 million between the pipe and the SPAC delivered to the balance sheet, which is amazing. And they have stock currency, and they bought a business for $300 million. Okay. And I would suspect it's not going to be uh, the first and last. And so uh, if you're one of the other 3D printing or additive manufacturing or digital manufacturing companies, you're looking at that. Uh, and sure enough, within very short order of desktop metal buying a, a company, you saw uh, Protolabs uh, buy another company. And so it's going to create this competitive fervor of a sense of scarcity that the targets are going to be bought by one of these other groups because they have the cash or stock currency. That's going to, you know, just sort of, like I said, create this MA frenzy. So I, I remember an article in, I think it was January or February of 2000 in Forbes magazine that was describing the dynamics of IPOs funding new competitors to traditional businesses. And this is one of the arguments that was behind the 
new economy, old economy arguments at the time, right? So if you remember the supply chain companies like uh, Commerce One, et cetera, right? The arguments were that they were becoming so well-funded, they were becoming so rich with cash that they had this high-priced currency that allowed them to make these acquisitions that they represented very real threats to the traditional players in that space, the WW Grangers, et cetera, of the world, right? That they were effectively going to be able to destroy them because of these dynamics. Now, of course, the lack of discipline that emerged on the back of that, and I have no idea whether this will happen in desktop metal with your guidance, I would certainly hope that it's not the case, but you know, when they are operating in this regime of surplus and a high priced stock, it becomes extraordinarily easy to assume that this is going to continue. And unfortunately it leads to potentially very adverse um, capital allocation decisions that you know, one bad acquisition can unwind the entire story. You, you and I have talked about kind of that penultimate one, right? AOL Time Warner in 2000, for example, January of 2000. Your sense is effectively that something like that is going to occur to mark the top. I, 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 feel, I feel it is imminent. I feel that there will be a high-flying, you know, very sexy, buzzed-about company with very high stock currency and very low fundamental quality, meaning, you know, no cash flow, burning money. Uh, the only thing that they've really sold is, you know, excessively stock. <laughs> and, um, and they will buy a legitimate business, a legitimate business that is unsexy, that is more value-oriented, that has cash flow, that has distribution channels, that's got good management. The management, frankly, that is sitting there being like, my God, what is happening? And that AOL Time Warner, you know, little did people know, it rang the bell. I mean, eight weeks later, we were in March of 2000. And, you know, the collapse, you know, down 70, 80% in the ensuing two years, uh, 90% in some of the, you know, the others, uh, you know, was imminent. So, so I, I, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, but can we find an example of that? You and I have talked about an automaker, you know, could it be Tesla? Could it be a media company? You know, I would look at who is high flying that people are scratching their head at. And in a sense, it's not quite a bailout, but it's, wait a second, here's this company with super low cost of capital. And here's this business that's actually well run. And if these things come together in the short term, it may make a lot of sense and the story will say so. But almost invariably, these things end up being colossal economic value destroying deals. And they are signals that the bell is ringing at the top. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've talked about this, right? I mean, why wouldn't Tesla, since we're talking about low quality, you know, marketing stock effectively companies, my apologies to all the Tesla fans out there, um, why wouldn't they acquire General Motors? Right. Why wouldn't they acquire BMW, Volkswagen, et cetera? Um, Elon, Elon has floated the idea publicly, right? I think he said either in an interview or on Twitter, you know, we would be open to, and I don't remember if he said merging, which would imply some weakness, or acquiring, which would imply strength, uh, you know, a major automaker. Okay. Uh, you and I, I think, both know the most likely reason why he hasn't made a move. Why, why, why do you think? Well, I mean, from my standpoint, it would open up a true inspection of his books, right? And I think it creates the dynamic that um, 
could presage an unwinding, but it doesn't have to, right? I mean, he could actually pull this off. I'm surprised, candidly, that he hasn't tried to go, quote unquote, hostile, right? I mean, the narrative would be very straightforward. We want their facilities. We need to expand capacity. Um, they don't know what they're doing, as evidenced by the fact that their stock prices languish while mine has exploded. Um, and create the conditions under which it is perceived that everything you highlighted, you know, where a story stock with a dubious management team is flipped on its head and the price of that story stock is used as justification for this is a superior management team and therefore should be able to take over a existing company, right? I think there's so much animosity towards Elon in the auto industry at this point, right? I mean, remember he said failed partnerships with basically every company that's out there, that it, he's unlikely to be able to pull it off without going hostile. But I, I would be surprised if he doesn't, you know, at some point he doesn't try. I, I think the trial balloon has been floated. I think it has to be a situation where it feels imminent that whoever it is, both management and shareholders are gonna be entirely complicit and along for the ride. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, you had lawsuits from the uh, uh, Solar City, uh, you know, acquisition, and and uh, I, I think that they would have to figure this out in a way that um, Elon retains total control. You know, he has control over the shareholder base today. It, it's a big risk, to your point. I mean, being able to control the audience is one thing, and he is really exceptional at that. Being able to control an audit that would raise significant public red flags um, above and beyond what they've been able to show, you know, is a different kind of risk. So uh, it, it, it would be the poster child to me in this era, but, um, you know, it, it could come out of left field, uh, you know, as the GameStop stuff did, uh, and, and it's an entirely different sector and a different player. But, but there will be some combination of a frenzy in M&A at a small scale, comparably, and some monster headline print 100 billion plus merger uh, in a field that isn't farmer or biotech. And, it, and it'll it'll signal we're near the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be hopeful that regulators would wake up to the SPAC phenomenon and some of the dynamics that, you know, the passive phenomenon. But I, I in all honesty, I don't expect it, right? It is particularly with a change of administration and everything else, it becomes really challenging. Regulators will at, at some point. But the point comes after everybody's lost money and, you know, the... the, and the outcry demands it, Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's never a priority. They never want to be blamed for it. No, nobody wants to be blamed for it. I think that's exactly correct. Um, you know, I did another uh, a Real Vision interview with uh, Louis Gav, where I referred to the CYA phenomenon, effectively, right? Nobody wants to be the person that is blamed for popping the bubble, even though they all want to prevent the bubble from inflating as it's in process, right? They, they are aware of the risk, but they don't know what to do. I would put significant money with high odds that in the next four years, I'm giving myself a reasonable margin of safety here. I'm assuming maybe we're in 96, you know, we got four years to March 2000, maybe we're in, you know, late winter of 99, I don't know. But high probability, uh, regulators will come in post facto. Uh, one or more of the accounting firms will go down. Okay, it happened right under their nose. They will find some group, they'll throw them, you know, to the walls, uh, just like Anderson, you know, it'll rebrand. Um, and uh, uh, there'll be some massive public legislature akin to like a Sarbanes-Oxley post facto that will be completely irrelevant. Uh, I mean, this is really predictable, but a priori, there are no sheriffs, there are no police other 
than skeptics and short sellers and honest press that are willing to say, wait a second, you know, something shady is happening here. Yeah, I mean, my, my discussion with um, uh, our mutual friend, Jim Chanos, um, you know, we highlighted this dynamic that this is the golden age of fraud and people genuinely don't understand or generally, not genuinely, generally don't understand the process of audit, right? It's not a forensic audit. It's not the same thing as in hindsight, trying to go through and figure out how people were deceived or how people got robbed of, of you know, their incomes. What you're actually looking for is, is there a reasonable explanation from the management team in terms of what transaction occurred where, and you're just making sure that the accounts balance, right? I mean, if you go in and you lie to your tax accountant, you're going to be able to get him to produce documents for you, but you're ultimately going to be subject to the fear, to the challenges of the IRS, right? When that audit occurs. Um, but we're a long way away from that. It's always the autopsy. Yes. It's never the examination. Correct. That's exactly right. So you hit on... Um, you hit on short sellers and you hit on, you know, the role that they play in providing discipline to the system, but we're watching short sellers get blown up, right? Um, and people are celebrating it. Can we talk about the social mood, what you're seeing outside of the rarefied world that you and I are very fortunate to participate in? If we take a step and look at the rest of America, um, you know, I, I would suggest that we have this perverse dynamic where markets that are at all time highs, and yet we have a subset of our society storming the Capitol and expressing extraordinary frustration at feeling that their voice is gone in an election, whether it was true or not. And obviously I wanna to be, to emphasize, I do not think that we had massive electoral fraud, et cetera, that justified those behaviors. But I do think that people have been inflamed in that manner, but we're seeing not just that, we're also seeing the same memes present themselves in Wall Street bets. We're seeing the same memes present themselves in, in Antifa, which is now increasingly coming out in an anti-Biden framework, right? I mean, it's a it's a let's let the world burn format. What do you think is going on? What's your what's your read on is there a unifying factor between these these various movements that we're seeing? It's easy to connect the narrative, and I can make the case obviously like you have a populist movement. Um, it's easier because of technology to coordinate and communicate and plan and um, and make a move on the capital and then quite literally by hominem make a move on capital markets. Um, I, and it started in the same way, like QAnon started as like a ridiculous meme and, you know, this thing took off. It became actually a cult, uh, you know, in a funny self-aware way. WSB, Wall Street Bets and Reddit is a, is a little cult. Um, you know, people don't necessarily know each other. There's a common spirit, a common bond. But, you know, you've had this democratization of everything from, you know, access to fractional shares, Robinhood, uh, margin accounts upon opening, uh, the fact that pandemic put people at home and they weren't gambling on sports, the sports was canceling, they started gambling on, on the stock market. And the fact that you get the positive social proof and the positive personal feedback that it's working, right? I mean, you buy anything, it goes up and people are rallying and you're part of this thing and it feels really good. It feels like you're in a, it, it literally feels like arena sport, like blood sport. You're in the arena, everybody's cheering together. You know, you're slaying the big guys. I could just as easily have seen a narrative take off that said, we're along the human ingenuity trade. My God, never bet against, uh, you know, technology and, and progress. You know, it's, a, it's amazing when you think about biotech and people are bemoaning right now how incompetent the vaccine distribution or the coordination was. And if you put it in stark perspective, we had a situation where smallpox 
was you know, first found 1500 BC, fast forward 3,500 years to 1980, 3,500 years it's cured, okay? HIV and AIDS, same year, 1980, okay, oh my God, we have a thing, 15 years later, life-saving drugs. Smallpox, 3,500 years. HIV, 15 years. Ebola, 2014, 2016. Vaccine by 2019, four or five years. And COVID, we call it COVID-19, really came on the scene. Q1, 2020, we have not just one, but multiple vaccines. One year? I mean, in the annals of human history, that's amazing. So I can make a counterfactual argument my God, what a time to be long and loud, human ingenuity, and excited about our ability to command progress. And shame on anybody that is, like me, criticizing people like Elon Musk you know, for the nuances of potentially fraudulent accounting when they're going to Mars and, and all this. Okay, And I could just as easily see a narrative that said, no, Wall Street bets wasn't about sticking it to Melvin Capital and short sellers. It was about being long, you know, great innovation and GameStop you know, is a, is a, is a, uh, a thing that they love and video games and video games led to NVIDIA and NVIDIA led to AI revolution. So there now, do I believe that? No, is the easier <laughs> explanation is the easier, but I'm, I'm just making the point no. that you can come up with a factual narrative that could infect people to say, no, this isn't about sticking it to the man or like just stay at home speculators, you know, uh, or, or the same thing. Like when people talk about People, you know, that are terrorists, like they're not educated. No, they're highly educated. I mean, I don't think these people are stupid. I think, I think they're smart. I think it became a phenomenon that they were probably like, oh my God, this is actually working. You know, um, it worked with Tesla when it happened and, and it's working now. And I just think that it's like a giant flash mob, um, and how it ends. And, uh, I mean, this is the thing that sort of, worries me because I've been speculating about what the catalyst is that causes rates to rise. And uh, the catalyst may be the speculators. It may be the Fed moving in and being like, well, okay, wait a second. You know, we wanted to put money in people's pockets during a pandemic and we wanted to create, but oh my God, you know, they're taking their stimmies and they're buying tendies, right? They're taking their stimulus checks and, and they're getting the feedback of chicken tenders in the stock market. And these memes are crazy. We got to put an end to this. And, and the critics would be right to say, don't focus on, you know, the small segment of Wall Street or whatever, like that's dominating the headlines. You got real people that are suffering in the streets that need, you know, unemployment and Main Street is suffering. Don't let this dominate the news cycle. And I can also see a case where the Fed is like, we got to do something about this. You know, capital markets are not functioning and the pressure from significant lobby powers of banks and Wall Street that are like, this is insane, could actually cause rates to rise. And when that happened, uh, you know, 20 years ago, that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, so so I, I think the narrative um, around this is going to be an interesting one. I agree with you that the likely outcome of this sort of jubilance and uh, flash mob type celebration is going to be limitations. We're actually already seeing that today, right? Where um, Discord has banned our Wall Street bets and the SEC is digging in to see if there are the equivalent of pool, um, you know, uh, stock pools that are being set up and operated. Um, many people on Twitter have highlighted for me that if you go into these, what you'll find is, is that there's bots that are being used to effectively organize these flash mobs, indicating some coordination behind it. 
I think one of the real challenges is if, if, if I think about the, the positive narrative that you gave, that feels very much like 99, right? I remember the excitement and the uh, uh, enthusiasm for the great new economy and world that was coming for us, right? The tone feels different this time. This is much more nihilistic. This is much more, I have no opportunity to succeed in life unless I win the lottery. And at least this lottery feels like something I have some control over. Could be. It could be. I, I, I will say this. When we spoke a year ago or so, I was speculating about an Occupy the Fed movement. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was going to be, my, my, my prediction about why it was going to occur was wrong. My prediction was, just like in 07, 08, you know, when we had Occupy Wall Street post-crisis, 08, 09, and you had you know, the Tea Parties on one side and you had you know, the, um, the Occupy Wall Street on the other side, but you know, they were basically anti-big banks and, and bailouts and all that. I thought we were going to have an Occupy the Fed that would be driven by Trump's populism as the stock market went down, turning on the Fed. And my prediction was that you would see the old guard buying gold and the new guard buying Bitcoin. And um, you, know, you are at the center of that debate in a brilliant way that I think many don't appreciate. But uh, now I'm revising that, uh, having been wrong. <laughs> uh, and I think we will see an Occupy the Fed movement. And it will be driven by a backlash to the backlash of the backlash. So yeah. first backlash, uh, you know what? Screw these, screw these companies, these, these guys that are short. And by the way, I think that really started with Elon, right? Elon's yeah. war against the short sellers, getting the fanboys galvanized. You know, this is an epic struggle for the future of humanity. And these short sellers, you know, are, are picky you about, you know, my accounting, you know, let's go get them. And it's why you see Elon and Chamath. And both have virtues about them, okay? But but uh, it it feels really dirty seeing the cheerleading, almost inciting to you know siege and and capturing in the same populist way that Trump did, mm-hmm. and arguably a brilliant way, the masses of retail investors, and it will enable them to print money. I mean, Elon by saying Signal and seeing what happened ten days ago or two weeks ago, saying Etsy and seeing what happened saying game stomp, knowing what was going to happen, single words, the power of an individual based on the ad infinitum. I know that other people know that other people know that when Elon tweets something, other people are going to buy and creating this frenzy is an amazing concentration of power. Now, does Twitter come in and suspend Elon's account the way that they stopped Trump's account? Probably not. Jack and Elon are close friends, right? I actually, I abhor Trump. You and, you and I don't disagree. Uh, you and I disagree about the politics. I actually think it was wrong on the freedom of speech piece. I think it's wrong to suspend Wall Street bets. Uh, I'm probably a little bit closer to you in the libertarian sense of this, of let these things happen and figure out their natural sources as opposed to trying to suppress them and censor them in some way, because the pressure and the demand is still there. And it's just going to pop up in some other way that we can't expect and maybe a more dangerous way. It's like on-campus drinking. You know, I remember you shut down the on-campus drinking. What happens? It goes into the basements and in the dark places and then kids are dying, right? Because it's not happening at the bars. So um, all of which is to say, Occupy Fed, I think will occur when the Fed tries to shut down this speculation. Like I said before, I was trying to figure out the catalyst for the speculation. I think the speculation is the catalyst. The Fed raises rates, tries to shake some of the money out, or they try to change some of the uh, option uh, rules or regulations to try to reduce that. And then these people go crazy and are like, occupy the Fed. And then you see the crypto people pour in 
and you see crypto go crazy. Yeah, that's I, I, so unfortunately, as you point out, like I'm kind of stuck in the middle of a quote unquote debate. For me, it's not a debate. I'm actually just trying to spread the information around something after having done a very deep dive uh, from a professional. Standpoint. I know you have not uh, uh, distributed very widely your views, and I'm very eager for you to because, uh, as I shared with somebody, I have not had my mind changed more often or more consequentially than by you when I hear and see you present empirical evidence for something that makes me stop and say, oh shit, I'm wrong. So. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. And I would, I would flip that around. It's, it's certainly a give and take on that front. You've given me the opportunity to, to hit on this. And I would just suggest that the, the thing that worries me most about the crypto dynamics is not that people have a view that there is an exciting next world ahead of us. It's that they've adopted it under a false rubric that to me feels very coordinated, right? That it is a um, view that the problem is the collapse of the dollar, right? So I'm very active in public markets. I can assure you the dollar is not collapsing. It is not losing its relevance. It is not being printed out of existence, et cetera. You can disagree with how policy is being used um, with the flexibility that we have with the dollar and a fiat mm -hmm. currency. But it is not an intentional debasement trying to spur inflation, et cetera. And if you listen to the, the um, narratives that exist within the crypto space, they're completely incoherent, right? On one hand, we need inflation to get rid of the debt. On the other hand, we can't possibly have inflation. We need a deflationary currency, right? You know, it, it's, it's not at all coherent. And unfortunately, I see it as aligned with many of the other narratives. My increasing assumption is that we should be less concerned about Russian or Chinese influence in our elections and increasingly concerned about how easy it is to stoke social dis unrest and disunion through um, spreading these memes, right? By, by giving people who are experiencing true terror and frustration and fear at not being heard, not being understood, not having the world recognize the uncertainty and pain that they are experiencing on an individual basis that leads to the QAnons, that leads to the Antifas, that leads to the crypto community, candidly. It's what I'm seeing. And when it breaks, I agree with you. The real risk is that the storming of the Capitol building is next time done by professionals rather than relatively mentally you know, uh, uh, challenged just in terms of mental illness. I mean, a guy running around with a buffalo hat you know, you got to ask yourself, is this really, you know, the leader of a resistance movement or is it somebody who is being manipulated? And to me, it is very clear that we are seeing increasing manipulation. If you listen to the language that is being used, we hear the exact same phrases dumped in Wokistan is, are being dumped in Magistan. The two are next to each other on a circle, right? It's not a, it's, it, it's not a spectrum in terms of they're on the other side. They're coming back again and, and they're next to each other, right? They're both being driven to this point. Um, so it's it's a very painful thing, and I'm doing everything I can in a positive framework to try to make people aware of the risks that exist. As you know, um, nobody wants to hear it, and that's fine. I understand that. All I can do is hope that a small subset of the population actually learns something in the process. And um, I've been encouraged by that. You know, I'm, I'm taking a lot of heat and a lot of hate. But I'm also getting a lot of people reaching out and saying thank you. So it, it goes in both directions and I'll, I'll, I'll take it when I can get it.
Well, heat, heat and hate often follow heresy and heretics and heretics often follow truth. So we shall see. We shall see indeed. Um, you mentioned our disagreements on Trump and um, prior disagreement that we had had about China. I'll confess that, you know, my focus on Trump was never as the individual. It was always around the China issue. And I'm incredibly concerned watching the incoming Biden administration and the individuals that are being appointed to deal with the uh, uh, dynamic of U.S.-China relations. I'm, I'm very concerned that we are engaged in something that looks a lot like the Yergothene War in Roman history, where the Senate was functionally bought and incapable of responding to the to um, the violations of sanctions that have been put in place by this, the Senate itself. I'm seeing that on the China side, but I have to confess that having watched Trump's behavior, you had an extraordinary point that you cannot lead from that position. You cannot unify from that position. I think you were very right on that. As you look forward from here, what do you see with the Biden administration? What do you see on, on China? Where are you currently on those two fronts? So, and, you know, for me, for Trump, it was, it was the mendacity and it was the character yep. and it was the, is this somebody that I want my children to look at as a role model? And it was always definitively no. Um, and, 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 I, and I think psychologically it created an enormous amount of human suffering. Uh, I think, you know, half the population that I understand that supported him is in pain, uh, you know, feels left behind, um, has lost relative status. And then, you know, the other half of the population was, was being intentionally targeted in a way that um, it, it created enormous human suffering that felt very unjust. Um, you know, whether Biden is successful at unifying this, you know, it, it's, uh, there's so many incentives against unification by so many people at a local and state level. There's so many um, people who profit from the division. And it's interesting because as you talked about, you know, the storming of the Capitol, when you talk about the storming, you know, of, of GameStop and the hedge funds, it's, it's this us versus them tribal mentality, which is part of our species that is so hard to transcend. It, it really requires humble leadership that's able to get people to find unifying themes and concepts that are bigger than themselves. You know, the great thing that I always rail against is actually very good at that, um, which is religion. You know, religion is very good at being able to take people that are very disparate and find some unifying thing that's much bigger than themselves. I think <laughs> inspiring narratives about science and technology can be, it's a little bit too complex, maybe far out there, a little less appealing in them, having direct consequences to people, you know, going, uh, ascending to heaven or hell. But um, <clears throat> I, I think, I think if there is a way to have more nuanced conversations, including China, you know, I, I have swung like a pendulum in, in two ways. At first, I was very caught by the idea before you influenced me of new China and old China, new China being primarily, you know, the Alibabas and the uh, JDs and the um, rise of the technologists and the scientists and the entrepreneur and the access to foreign capital and the opening up and the giant markets that we're going to have scale that was unprecedented uh, in combination with coordination from state, you know, that would allow billions of people onto something. Um, and old state-owned enterprises that were old, uncompetitive, propped up by debt, ghost town residential, um, you know, and, and then you start to see the bailing out of old China by new China at the hand, not of the free market or the invisible hand, but a very clear hand of the great, you know, uh, uh, Pooh Bear, you know, of, of Xi. And, uh, the surveillance, the oppression, uh, the Uyghur population, the potential influence, not just in elections and trying to undermine, you know, peer competitors uh, democratically, but the foundation of uh, that great intersubjective belief system, which is our currency. Um, 
that that swayed me very much more into a whoa, something is much more nefarious here. Um, and I really changed my stance on that. Uh, reports of espionage, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, these things happen everywhere, so it's not like pointing a finger, but 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 I, I do have a slightly nuanced view and, and and almost pine for a nuanced view from the Biden administration, which is not a return to, you know, Nixon and China, let's open up, let's, uh, you know, suddenly embrace this because that will be exploited and not a pure jingoistic saber rattling, let's shut everything down and ban every Chinese product. Um, there is merit that Chinese products have kill switches and, and uh, technological Trojan horses. But I think finding some middle ground, which is going to take a long time, but working towards the middle ground um, to me feels like the way out. Um, and I worry that if we become too absolutist, that China is a pure enemy, the virtue of that would be potential US unification in the same way that we did in the 80s around Russia, having a common enemy once again. Maybe we had too much success in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as a country uh, and the relative collapse of communism and Soviet Union <clears throat> and the rise of the US that suddenly people were able to turn in internecine war um, and we exacerbated our, our our differences, which then foreign powers in turn have probably exacerbated the differences between us to put us on the brink of you know civil civil war. I, I would like to see a more nuanced approach where we're able to be hard on economics and actually you know whether we call them a currency manipulator, where we uh, explicitly call out IP theft, whether we explicitly call out and condemn the surveillance or the human rights issues, things that we were always pussyfooting around before. We should be very stern in standing up for the principles that so many people are attracted to in that great shining beacon you know, on a hill that is the US. Um, but I think that there should also be an appreciation of where they are as a country in terms of the mass poverty and how much has changed in, uh, you know, in, in 100 years and, and cultural differences um, you know, that are, that are more, more complicated. Um, I think otherwise, the risk is in our own self-interest. Shutting down China and um, Huawei and um, uh, reshoring and building resilience in our manufacturing, which I think is of critical importance, both on semiconductors, uh, in pharmaceutical manufacturing. You know, we we're part of a company called Resilience that is is doing this back here on defense. Um, I think that's all good. I think what's bad with negative consequences is China is going to develop domestic industries at a rate and pace with a level of coordination that has so evidently been lacking as you know, evidenced over the past two years of how we've dealt with so many things. And um, I think that's gonna come back to bite us in a really big way. So unless we have national coordinated efforts to be competitive, I truly believe that you will have an ascendant China industrial scientific base like we've never seen before. That was akin to what the US had coming out of World War II for the next 60 years. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think that China has a true structural disadvantage and the, the need for control, what you describe, is effectively a parasitic load that grows, right? So if you are constantly forced to think, is what I'm doing approved by Xi Jinping thought? It is the um, insight that I'm generating, does it expose me to 
reports by my peers who might be jealous of my advances or who might find it politically more expedient to claim that I am anti-state with a with my process. That's the same thing that happened in the Soviet Union, right? Ultimately, that parasitic load begins to overwhelm the coordination component. So I'm I'm less concerned that they have that capability. I actually think the bigger risk is that in combating China, in adopting the hard stance, that we become more like them. Let, let me pause on the first part and yep. let's go double click into the second one. If you take Soviet Union as an example, what you describe, which I 100% agree with, in stifling free speech and stifling dissent and stifling, I mean, the very essence of a um, you know Poparian or a David Deutschian sense of um, uh, conjecture, hypothesis, criticism, it's how science progresses. If you cannot openly conjecture, come up with hypotheses and uh, have skepticism and doubt and uh, profess reason, uh, if that is suppressed, by definition, you are suppressing creativity. And if mm -hmm. you suppress creativity, it is why on the one hand, you never saw any great consumer products from Russia because there was never any competition for these. There was never any great aspiring ideal. What you did see from Russia that was competitive was science and technology directed by the state and very competitive MiG fighter jets in the military. And so I would think with reasonably high probability, you're going to exactly, as you say, stifle free speech, stifle creativity. You know, you haven't really seen, although you saw one example of great science fiction in the free body problem, 2008, 2009, translated, you know, five, six years ago, you haven't seen anything else really emerge from that. Uh, that was probably at a time where suppression was not even as high as it is now. And, and, and so I think you will see stifled creativity. Um, I think you will see more Awaiwe's types, you know, artists in descent, um, some of which will become very famous, almost like a Navalny in Russia uh, in galvanizing descent, particularly with tools of technology. But I think you will see a very competitive scientific and technological and military apparatus uh, at state direction. Yeah, I, so this is where you and I completely agree, right? But if you think about the underlying dynamic that you're highlighting there, the lack of emergence of consumer type products, the lack of the emergence of a supporting economy around that means that that um, subset, the defense and military aspects of it, the pure science aspects of it become a larger and larger fraction of the economy. Effectively, the state is siphoning off more and more of the resources from an increasingly stagnant economy and creating the conditions for its own collapse. That's really the story of the Soviet Union. That, that is true if it is an entirely closed system. But we have seen China reach out uh, in its own version of statecraft and economic statecraft. Now, not necessarily in the same sort of first world countries that we're allied with, but their dependence on China. And you already saw this with 5G chips uh, and our influence to say, no, 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 don't take those chips. Don't work with them. Uh, I think that that's only going to compound. You're going to see lots of innovations from China that China is going to get into other peer countries. And there's going to be literally a splitting of the world between US ally technologies and internet and China ally technologies and internet. But I don't think like the Soviet Union, where virtually nobody other than Cuba was dependent on you know, the Lata, you know, their, their Russian car. Um, I, I think that's the one big distinction that China has done the a priori one belt, one road initiative and, and, and created the distribution channels into certain countries that are going to become dependent upon China's science and technology base. Again, I think I, I disagree with you on this. And I, I do agree that we're going to see a fracturing. I think part of the reason why you do need to be harder and more firm in breaking the two systems apart is for exactly the reasons that you said. Ultimately, any advances in consumer products that came out of the Soviet Union were a function of mimicking advances that were made in the Western markets, right? Where there were crossover points, you know, a car 
makes its way into China, into Russia or, or the former Soviet Union, sure, they can disaggregate it and say, okay, this is better. How does this work, et cetera? They can copy those dynamics. We've seen an extraordinary component of that already in a very open exchange where we have turned to China as the manufacturer for us, right? If you're going to stop that process and starve that military and defense piece, you ultimately have to be increasingly strident about breaking those two systems apart. The second part that you're hitting on is I completely agree with what you're saying that the world itself is going to fracture. And I think broadly, we have a false narrative that coming out of World War II, that the US was the global superpower, we were all organized under Bretton Woods, et cetera. No, there was a dollar block, there was a ruble block, and the two were functionally split. Um, what's happened with Xi is that he, you know, is, as many will point out, he was obsessed with the dynamics of how China or how Russia, Soviet Union broke apart under perestroika and glasnost and effectively has decided we're going to shut that down, right? We're going to reverse that process. We're going to increase the state control. That's just reiterating or repeating the dynamics of the dismantling of Lenin's new economy into the Stalinist era, right? And so I think we're headed exactly down that path, right? We are in the annals of history in the China story somewhere in the 1932 to 1935 type range. And again, my views on crypto are influenced by the, the, the dynamics around that. Whether that ends up being the case or not, obviously it's stochastic. It depends on the actions of the individual players in the game, but the incentive structures are functionally the same. The big difference this time around is much like and it's not really even that big of a difference, right? Again, our allies in Europe are in a very difficult place, right? Because Europe is functionally a region of the world that is part of Eurasia. It's not truly a separate continent. It is a peninsula off of that continent that has historically been allied with the U.S. in order to keep the Soviet Union in check. Now that it's perceived that their next door neighbor, Russia, is weakened to the point that it doesn't represent a real threat, there's very little incentive to ally with the United States. And increasingly, there's a, in my view, very false view that China represents a future source of aggregate demand that allows Europe to deal with its continual um, you know, uh, lack of aggregate demand tied to low population growth, aging population, et cetera. Our allies are quite simply just not our allies. And the idea that we can um, get them all to work together I think we're going to need, unfortunately, what are going to feel like very catastrophic events and breaks, similar to the period of isolationism that occurred in the 1920s and early 1930s in the United States during the Great Depression that forced them to eventually change their view, right? It is, there's an unstable equilibrium in Eurasia. Economically, it makes very logical sense what you were saying that you will see an increasing affinity magnetism out of necessity, even if it's disapproval of Europe towards Asia, specifically China. If I had to posit and speculate one aligning exogenous shock, um, I do think, and there's a playbook for this already, it would be terror, Islamic terror. And I think it could be from Northern Africa and seeing the Sahel and Maghreb populated in the same way that Afghanistan and uh, ultimately Syria have been. And to the extent that Europe and the U.S. become re-allied, probably starting first with U.S. and France and Mali, um, that uh, you see that being a geopolitical aligned front, even while the economic front is fracturing. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful that that's the case. I don't think that's going to be the flashpoint. You and I have talked what I think about what I think will end up being the flashpoint. I'm not entirely certain um, 
that the focus will be in that manner. Um, but, but we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. I think we both see the challenges here. Let's try to change it to a little bit more hopeful story, right? Um, what are you looking at today as we start to wrap this up? What are you looking at today that you look at from a technological standpoint that just, you're like, you know what, this is going to have a huge impact. This is going to change things. And you and I both agree that it tends to be at that base layer, right? It's not, hey, look, I have a new iPhone upgrade. It's for me, uh, you know, we mentioned this before, the innovations in solving the problems of protein folding, for example, in the biomedical space. That to me feels like the starting point of another gene sequencing revolution. Because um, proteins are ultimately much more, the protein expressions are ultimately much more important in terms of the impact that it has on us as, as individuals and living organisms. React to that and, and what are you seeing that, I'm, that I haven't seen? I agree with you. Um, and I, I have two themes that are sort of on this. They are both optimistic. I think they are going to be the basis for an incredible discovery. And I actually think it really ties nicely with a lot of what we talked about, about pure competition, geopolitics, particularly China. One theme that connects with the, the protein discovery uh, is um, uh, what I would call the technologies of science. The technology of science to us means what are the tools, the instruments, mm -hmm. the new microscopes, the new pieces of equipment that give a company, a country competitive advantage in being able to discover things. So I can tell you that years ago, uh, a friend of ours, Don Kenya, who is the chair and CEO of a company called FEI, which ultimately sold to Thermo Fisher for a little under $5 billion, had pioneered a microscope called the Cryo-EM. And this thing was going for you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. Suddenly, demand went off the charts. They went from 100,000 or so to a million and then to $5 million per instrument. Universities were clamoring. If they could get one of them, all of the researchers were clamoring to just get time. And sometimes the waiting list in a single lab was up to six months. China had bought about a dozen of these machines and were making structural biology discovery after discovery. Structural biology leads to Nobel Prize, whether it was the discovery of the structure of DNA or certain kinds of proteins. So you're actually, I think, very insightful in the idea that, that protein structure and to the extent that it helps us fight disease and discover drugs um, is a pathway. And I think the way uh, that's going to light that pathway are going to be the instruments and tools and technologies of science. We have one company, hasn't even really been publicly talked about, that I'm extremely excited about called ICON, E-I-K-O-N. This is the work of Eric Betzig, who was a Nobel Prize winner for really developing a new technique of optics, originally inspired by seeing out into the stars. And then he realized, wait a second, I can actually use the same technique to break the diffraction limit and see below the wavelength of light into cells in real time. The layman's analogy is if you had security video footage for a 7-Eleven and you saw the store before at 7 a.m. and after 3 p.m. and all you see in the after is that it was ransacked and you know, disarray, you would know that it was robbed, but you have no idea who did it, what happened, what they stole, how they got in or whatever. You have two snapshots. That's most of what we do with biology today. You put a drug in before, after you see what happens if you're looking phenotypically at the structure of it. He is able to image inside the cell and see when you put a drug in the cell, every nanosecond, what is happening, how the molecules are distributing, how the nucleus is absorbing something, how the mitochondria are metabolizing something, it's insane. So we started a company, uh, around this with some absolutely incredible people. It's raised $85 million in their first round of funding. It's going to be a really big deal. That led to another company that we're doing with some of the same people involved. 
uh, for a snapshot instead of video, but at an even smaller resolution so that you can get atomic resolution of molecules relevant for drug design, particularly on the protein side. There are companies we're in like Stratios that are doing full-scale automation of labs so that a scientist could be on the beach in the Bahamas and pull up their iPad and run an experiment as though a software program can use AWS today and they don't need to be in a white lab coat titrating and pouring beakers. It's all done by robots. So big theme, I think, is going to be getting behind the technologies and the instruments and the tools of science. And I think that's going to be important on a national scale competitively. I think it's going to be about productivity for some of the cutting edge scientific uh, companies, be they biotech, pharma, drug discovery, chemistry companies. And then the other big thing, which is related and also geopolitically relevant is space. I mean, there's such a clear analogy here. All my criticisms, notwithstanding of Elon, you know, take the railroads and everything that came about that from real estate and uh, land settling and commerce and communications, all of which came from taking a bunch of metal uh, uh, iron, you know, uh, uh, tracks, laying them down and competing about the locomotives to get the space. We are doing the same thing. Take those horizontal tracks, turn them vertically, make them disappear, put rocket boosters and said, you got SpaceX, you got Rocket Lab, there's probably a dozen other competitors, okay, it will be competed away. Next thing that happens, you see SpaceX raising these crazy high valuations, Elon's got to justify the TAM. How does he do that? Well, we have only got four or $5 billion of potential revenue a year from launches, even if people are launching lots of stuff. And you got an ecosystem of companies that are launching lots of stuff. We have companies like Planet Labs that are launching small satellites to take images. You got people like Kymeto that are doing communications. Uh, so you have a whole ecosystem there. But Elon says, wait a second, we need a bigger TAM. I got to do Starlink. I have to have a global communication system coming from space. So again, Kymeta now, you got the antennas to be able to capture that. Kymeta is going to be like the Qualcomm of space communications, okay, because of this. Uh, then we just funded a company, us and founders fund, uh, called Varda. And this is a ridiculous, crazy, far out idea, and it's real, which is zero or low gravity space manufacturing. And there's going to be certain products, starting with things like fiber optic cables, but uh, that you would not manufacture on Earth, you would manufacture off Earth and come back here. And that comports much more with the Jeff Bezos vision of space, as opposed to the Elon vision of space, which I poo-poo. We're, we have no reason to really go to Mars. There'll be lots of great discoveries that come as a byproduct of trying to go to Mars, no doubt. But Bezos's prospect for space is much more rational for humanity. Don't get off this planet. Let's just send our dirty, dull, disgusting industries off planet and then re-import things that have high value per kilogram you know, back down here. And so uh, I, I would say those are the two themes, technologies of science and the instruments and tools to, to do it and do it better and competitively and, um, and space generally, but the entire ecosystem that you can quite literally see vertically replicating what we did with the railroads in the late 19th century. That sounds like you have a vision of the future that actually is quite hopeful. And so after we've had a lot of dark discussions and there's a lot of problems that are out there that we do need to figure out how we're going to address as a society, I agree with you. I think that looking at the current environment, that the advances that are being made will likely, certainly hopefully make our lives much richer and create the opportunity for the productivity that gives us the surplus that allows many of those who currently feel locked out to participate. I think one of the big problems that exists in things like the crypto world is this idea that you need some variant of austerity, right? That to solve the debt problems, you need to inflate it away. History does not support that, right? What we need to actually do is create the surplus that allows people to, to experience an improved life 
even as we're generating enough productivity gains to pay down the obligations that we've incurred. And uh, what you're describing is certainly a step in that direction. I'm incredibly excited by those topics as well. We have to do this more frequently. I really want to be able to sit down again next time in person. But if we can't, can we do six months, please? You got it, man. I miss you. I miss you, too. All the best, Josh. Thank you so much. Peace. Peace. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.